Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Welcome back everybody to Savage to Sage. Today I'm happily joined by Patrick Burke, the CEO and co-founder of Boxcore. Welcome, Patrick. Dan, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be with you and grateful for your friendship and chance to Spend some time with you. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you tell everyone about Boxcore first so they just have an understanding of what it is that you do? Yeah. So Boxcore is a formative feedback business. We started uh, in October of 2016. And I think one of the lessons we learned is that there's there's two types of feedback. You have summative feedback, which is kind of your summary or your snapshot of some period of time, kind of that how'd we do question. We've really found there, there's a void in this idea of formative feedback, which is really almost more of a process, but it's finding the right touch points along either you know, a client journey or an employee journey, getting small snippets of feedback that organizations can use to form and shape what they do as they go forward. We've tried to keep it really simple. We have a little two-by-two two matrix, which is the box score. We ask two questions. There's a comment and really just help organizations create culture of feedback. That's our passion. And that's what we want to bring to the market. I love that. Yeah. And us at full stack, you know, being in that HR space, it seems like the whole idea of like the once a year or the twice a year performance review is sort of something that is becoming less common or less desired. Could you speak to a little bit of why you think that is? Yeah, for sure. And really, that's one of the reasons why we started Boxboard. And I guess the, I should explain the we, my dad is actually my co-founder in this, which has been really fun. So he was a partner at Ernst & Young and their human capital practice for a long time. I was at Duke Energy. And it was really just this idea you're exactly talking about. It's like we have these once a year sit downs that are miserable for everybody. It's miserable for the person that has to give the performance review, the person that's sitting through it. And it turns into kind of like, let's talk about the last year, but we only remember the last three weeks. So that's all we end up really talking about. And really just feeling like there's got to be a better way to do that. I mean, it's easier, right, to not have those conversations. It's easier just to have some piece of paper you're going to work from once a year, check a box and go forward. Like, I don't think that honors the employee. I don't think it it helps the organization be more successful. And so that's part of why we try to keep what we do so simple, too, is like the solution isn't to have a four-hour conversation 12 times a year, <laughs> but to just be able to have an actionable stream of data that you can discuss. Most of the time you high-five and you move on, right? But there's one or two little outliers you can make a small correction that helps the employee be more engaged and better performing. It helps the organizations and frankly, just everybody's happier. It feels like that's going away, which is good. But we see a lot of other companies that go the other route too, which is they don't do anything. I think there's kind of a happy medium on that that can be met. So that's what we're trying to support. I feel like we could probably fill a whole show just on this topic, but we're here more you know, to hear your story and kind of why you taking this path toward entrepreneurship. So. Talk about like kind of that jump for you from where you were before to jumping in with your dad at Boxcore. So I started a company called Telemon, which is an incredible company in Carmel. Albert Chen, the founder, Stan Chen's the CEO. As a young person out of school that didn't know anything, that was an incredible place to plug in and just learn about the world, but specifically from leaders who really cared about their employees and cared about their customers. And it wasn't just kind of a big behemoth corporation, but a real business. I went to Duke Energy, which is where 
I kind of tell people like I fell in love with business at Duke Energy. I had a, worked in started in a product management role, had the chance to build a kind of a business case around an underperforming business, the outdoor lighting business in the Midwest and the Carolinas. And it became kind of a, a big deal inside the company. And really, that was kind of where I, I saw I had like one of the more entrepreneurial jobs you can have at a billion dollar regulated business. I saw entrepreneurship, I think kind of it was more entrepreneurship, but I saw this this way of solving problems and doing things that was creative and it was kind of fast moving and, and fun. Honestly, like I love Duke. I had a fantastic experience there. Some of my great friends are still there. I knew that I didn't really want to work for a regulated business for my whole career. And it felt like kind of the momentum was going to push me to Charlotte where that's where the headquarters were. And I just thought, you know, like if I end up there, there's a decent chance, at least it has to be on the table that I'm going to be a lifer. And as much as I love Duke Energy, I just felt like that wasn't really what I wanted to be and do. My dad and I, honestly, since high school had talked about starting something together. The wisdom is apparent now. I didn't always understand it, but he really pushed me to go work somewhere for a while before we were to do that. And really just this whole performance review thing is really what started it. It was like, there's got to be a better way to communicate with employees. Feedback is so important and there was almost none of it. He saw it from kind of more the the HR side of things. He actually, at that point, had left EY and was an executive pastor in Boston, which was kind of a whole different view into feedback and how organizations work. And so we just felt like this is a huge problem that everybody has. Who's to say whether we're the two yahoos that are going to solve it or not? But there's got to be enough here to at least try to start something new and kind of take the plunge. And that's really what pushed us into it, I would say. And that's really unique. It seems like it could be cool to jump in with a parent like you did. I've had someone on that's jumped in with, a, I think, a brother, another person with a sister. What's that been like to jump into entrepreneurship with your father? It's been really special. I mean, sometimes it can be a little weird. I, honestly, I think it's weirder for me than it is for him <laughs> sometimes, especially when we're having a discussion about, you know, if we, not that we necessarily disagree, but we don't agree exactly on the next thing where we're headed. But I have to say, man, like you never question their desire for this to be successful or, you know, where they're coming from. If they kind of push back on something, no one's going to have your, have your back more than your dad. So it takes out a lot of the co-founder drama. It's a different element, right? There's there's a dynamic there that's different than if you just start something with your friend. It's been really great. And it's amazing to me, honestly, how many people I've met that have done the same thing. So it is kind of unique, but it's not that unique, really. There's lots of father-son, mother-daughter businesses that I've learned of that started that way. What would you say is the biggest surprise in terms of what you've learned about yourself since taking the plunge into entrepreneurship? So think self-awareness, like huh, I didn't really know that about myself before. And now I've figured it out. I think I've understood humility in a new way. I've never been one to take myself very seriously because I really don't. I just make fun of myself a lot. I've always had, I think, a reasonable understanding of my strengths and weaknesses. But man, like there's a difference between not taking yourself seriously and like really understanding how much help you need and how ill-equipped you are at times to like be successful in specific things. And so that was something that I really, I think it was surprising because I would have said I'm a humble person, but I think there was kind of an element of like, well, I can, I'll just figure this out or I can just fill in the blank, get it done. But it's like, man, this is a different animal. There's no lifeline to corporate side of things. We were blessed with like the definition of an angel investor to help us start this business. 
it's like my kids while we got this thing going, but like there's an amount of time that money's going to last. And (laughs) we blew through it at one point, which is a whole nother story and everything. But uh, humility is really the thing. I I think I understand humility and have been humbled in a way that I think was certainly unexpected when, when I started. Would you be open to share like an example of that? I mean, for me, it would be like when I trying to sell full stack for the first time, I made myself look like an idiot multiple times, but like, (laughs) what were some of those examples for you or a story where it's like, yeah, I was humbled in in this scenario? Yeah. I mean, I do think a lot of it ties back to sales. I can build a relationship with pretty much anyone because I mean, honestly, I just genuinely enjoy people and it's not hard for me. I don't feel like I have to work to be friends with somebody, but I think I thought that would translate into, oh, well, people want to do business with us because we're friends and because I made them laugh two or three times. And that huge gap between being able to build a relationship with somebody and then like solve a problem that they have in a way that's meaningful enough for them to give you give you their money. And just continually like jumping off one ledge, trying to get to the other and landing somewhere in the middle over and over and over again was super humbling. And just having to go back to our seed investor and my dad, my co-founder, honestly, even my wife at home, right? just be like, hey, ask about that deal. It's like, well, you know, it's been eight months and they haven't said no, but they haven't said yes yet either. And just feeling like you're in that crazy cycle over and over and over again of that. But then feeling like I should be able to solve the problem or why can't I? And just this kind of humbling of like, man, like this, you got to do something different and be willing to try new things and ask for help and be shameless in some, <laughs> some way too. Yeah, absolutely. Has there ever been a time I know from personally, you know, when I have a number of those experience over and over again and you're humbled to them, like, okay, is this a sign that <laughs> I should be in this or not? Or it just gets so emotionally taxing where it's like, Oh, you know, even though I didn't like, in your example, there were reasons you left Duke and, you know, wanting to get out of that market, at least there was some stability or predictability there. For some people, there's just burnout by how hard you have to work, you know, to make a startup succeed. Like, have there ever been moments where you're just like, I might need to throw in the towel here? I mean, once a day, probably not. (laughs) I mean, for sure. I mean, yes. At the spirit of your question, Absolutely. Probably every day. I'm like, what am I doing here? I don't know that I ever really was like, hey, I can't do this anymore. But I mean, honestly, Dan, the honest answer is like, we went maybe two years ago, six months without a paycheck because we'd blown through our funding and there was no, I mean, every once in a while, we'd be able to pull some money and pay myself a little bit. I applied for jobs, not because I wanted to quit, not because I felt like, oh, I can't do this anymore. But it's like, I mean, I got three little boys. I I got my wife. It's just that was the only adult (laughs) responsible thing to do. And I'm a person of faith. And so like, you know, prayed about it a lot. And my wife did too. And the jobs that I applied for that I was extraordinarily overqualified for, I couldn't even get an interview with these people. And so I just kind of felt like, man, like, it's not time to leave yet. And so just put your big boy pants on and keep slugging it out. To answer your question, I mean, it's certainly not, you know, you have your honeymoon, but then once that's over, it's a whole different thing. And I think anybody that starts a business that doesn't feel like, was this a good idea or not? <laughs> Didn't take a big enough leap, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, 
besides selling your services and your product to people, like what else did you do personally to, you know, overcome that and to get to a new spot? To get over that hump, you mean to keep the business moving? Is that what you're what you're saying? Yeah, I mean to keep yourself motivated, to keep the business going. You know, obviously you have to sell your way out of some situations like that or raise more investment, but like on a personal, like emotional level, like what helped you and maybe what has helped you to keep going? Honestly, my my faith was a big part of it. Just feeling like, you know what, like my wife and I felt very strongly that when we started jumping into entrepreneurship, it didn't mean we were going to be a billionaire when we got done, but like this was the correct next step for us. I think just honestly the frustration, but just the continuing being pointed back to it. I don't know, it kept our spirits up, but it kept like at least intellectually feeling like, hey, this is, we're in the right spot. You know, we, we did hit a little period of traction where we added a couple new clients at revenue numbers that were bigger than kind of what we had been doing previously, which helped a lot. And honestly, we had two other individuals put a little more funding in that kind of helped just kick the runway out a little bit, the combination between that and kind of the new clients. Honestly, I mean, I think the thing that was hard is like when things got tight, I started trying to hit a grand slam instead of just hit singles and doubles. Those take longer. They're harder deals. They're, if you get one, then that's great. But it's that's just a different animal. And so the combination of funding from someone who is my first boss out of school and then one of my best friends from my college baseball team enabled us to kind of not act less urgently in regards to the effort, but more like just play the long game again a little bit. Uh, which kind of helped us get into a better spot. I really like the baseball metaphor too. Well played. Which so. <laughs> <laughs> I understand, Dan. If it's not in a baseball metaphor, I don't, I don't, I'm not tracking. So Yeah, I like it. That is interesting. Like I think of it, I've been really on to the book Atomic Habits. And then there's a whole framework behind it, you know, called Tiny Habits that a researcher did a ton of work on. And it's like these incremental steps toward where you want to go. It's not necessarily putting together this elaborate plan or to use the baseball metaphor, like always swinging for the fence. It's literally just fundamentals. Like what's the essential problem that my company solves or, you know, on a personal level, what does health look like for me? And what's the next faithful step that I can take toward that? That's like what I would see as like your example of hitting singles and doubles, you know, and then learning from the times where you strike out or... Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it is really easy to overcomplicate things, too. It's just you, especially when things get hard, right? It's just, you. well, I'm going to do this brand new huge thing. It's like, man, just keep it simple. I love your, what's the next faithful step? That's all you can control a lot of the times, right? It's just, what's the next thing that I can do that makes sense? And you just go <laughs> day after day doing that. And it's amazing how far you'll go. It is. And... You mentioned of a family having three boys. I'm curious, like your life outside of work, like what refuels you, what recharges you? What are those things both, you know, on your own and with your kids? Honestly, my family does refuel me. I mean, I have three boys. So they're, my oldest is 10. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. I mean, it's insane in our house. I mean, it really is. Like, it's just, you need earplugs sometimes. We, <laughs> we have kind of like... No bleeding rule. It's like if they all come screaming inside, it's like if no one's bleeding, like go back out and figure it out. And if they are bleeding, how bad are you actually bleeding? Yeah. <laughs> but they're a ton of fun. 
And I really, I love spending time with them. We're very into sports. So I played baseball at Taylor University. I tried really hard not to push them into baseball, but they've kind of opted in. I mean, they're only 10, 8, and 5, right? So it's not like we're being ridiculous about it, but they've kind of declared their love for baseball. And so we're, we're all in on that. So I joke that in the spring, I'm a full-time volunteer little league coach. So I'll be coaching three different teams. And, and honestly, as crazy as it sounds, that is recharging to me because kids are funny. It's a level of baseball. It's still, it's fun. It's not, we're not trying to win the world series, right? We're just messing around and having fun out there. So that's definitely one thing. My wife is incredible. Like no one has overmarried more than I have. Um, so just, we try to, not as much as we'd like, but try to sneak out from time to time just to have dinner. Whenever we're together, we tend to kind of just dream together, which I find to be kind of restoring and rejuvenating. And then me personally, like I run. It's kind of my serenity moment. So I go with no music, no phone, nothing. I just go out and let it rip. The definition of let it rip has slowed down a lot in the last couple of years. But I just love being out there and just being by myself. And I feel like that's when I think the best, too. It's just there's no input. It's all just kind of me out there. And I enjoy reading, too. I spend a lot of time reading. Do you like running trails at parks or roads? What's your favorite? I like trails the best. But honestly, I find personal information that you don't care about. But my calf muscles somehow are always the weak point in my running. And so the trails sometimes, if I do trails too much, I just end up tweaking my calf. I don't. We live right by the canal, so I love going on the canal over past Butler, kind of down south that way by the IMA and down into that 100 acres. And I love running through there. That's probably my favorite spot. I go down there sometimes myself, so we'll have to meet halfway and do a couple laps together. That'd be great. You have to slow down for me, though, okay? (laughs) Similarly, you know, trail running outdoors, I get that. Like, I have my most creative moments. If I find like with some aspect of the business where I'm like, there's a creative block or I'm trying to figure out how do I position this or what question do I ask this prospect that I'm talking to that I think would be a great fit for full stack. It just unlocks something for me that, you know, nothing else does. And so I'm with you on that. Let's say you just have in between meetings or Zoom calls, like you just have like 10, 15 minutes and you'd know like I could do this activity and it's like this would be impactful for me to recharge, to gain focus or creativity. Like what would you do in those instances? I would say I do a really bad job of it. I mean, I generally go check my email or see if the Phillies traded for anybody that I need to know about. But I think there's so much just being in motion. I love to just kind of walk around for a minute, clear my head. I think one of the things that I've really tried to do better job of is just being disconnected from my phone, just not having that in my pocket all the time. And so if I go for a walk for 10 minutes, like I leave my phone either in my bag or by my computer or whatever, just kind of get away. I'm not great about it. I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I got that part of it nailed either, but I do see a difference even just at home too. Like the nights, like sometimes I'll just like stick my phone in my bag, put my bag by my door, try not to touch it until the kids go to bed which, I mean, honestly, I'm probably 20% successful. <laughs> but the, the nice yeah. I'm able to pull it off, I mean, everything is better. I just feel like that ties back to the creativity piece. If you just disconnect, it's still going to be there for you when you get back. But just creating space for thoughts that have nothing to do with either 
a sales pitch that you just gave or client issue or what, just create space for new ideas and not force it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I a question for you. One of the things that I have a hard time with sometimes is when I go for these runs and I have this idea and I'm still like two miles from home and I don't have a phone, I don't really write it down. And I feel like I forget half of it. Do you have that problem? Like, what do you do if you have a creative thought while you're out and about? I tend to bring my phone. I try to put it on a mode where I'm not getting notifications. Music helps me a little bit just to like get into a creative, like excited space as well. And to help me to keep going when I feel like I need to stop. So yeah, I typically will have my phone and usually just have the notes open. I'll sometimes just stop like running and walk for a little bit and hopefully not run into a tree and write out, just let that creativity flow onto the page. So I like what you're saying, but of not bringing your phone, but like, that's why I do is because it's like a note in lieu of a notebook that you awkwardly run with. It's nice to uh, just type out some notes and then revisit that when you get back. So don't let me uh, change your no phone style. <laughs> so I want to pivot a little bit to like team and culture at Boxcore and talk to me about the team members you have outside of your dad and how did you land those folks? How did you know like, yeah, these people that are early for us, like first hires, first team members outside of co-founders, like how do we know that they get it? They're just aligned with the vision. Yeah. I mean, we're still a very small team. A lot of what we do honestly is through contractors. I mean, to me, it all boils down to relationships is, you know, I think people that we work with and that we bring in, whether they're employees or interns or contractors, like they generally have come through some trusted relationship. If you have that, then you can figure out everything else. Like if you know people share your values, they're people that are trustworthy and full of integrity, then I mean, you can disagree about anything, but end up on the right page. I'm willing to work, work through any kind of conflict as long as it's like, well intended, not well intended, it's the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Just coming from the correct spirit and spot. I'll tell you what though, honestly, one of the things that's really been a game changer for us, and I'm sorry to the shameless plug for Taylor, but Taylor has a promising ventures program where we've had five interns that have come to spend the summer with us that Taylor has paid for. This program is in place to help put students into startups for the summer just give them an entrepreneurship experience and get real experience. So I have this conversation with every one of these students is like, if you want like a button down, check the box internship that, you know, exactly what you're going to get. And they're like, this isn't your spot. Like, I mean, I don't even know what I'm going to do in three days from now, but if you want to jump in head first and do real work, would love to have you. I mean, honestly, man, all five of those interns have contributed something significant. So our summer intern last summer, which actually we had lunch, right? With Ty. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like Ty redid our website and did some marketing stuff. Um, the intern before him, Caleb Fox, like he's a statistics PhD candidate now at Baylor in Texas. And like he, we built a whole really cool thing in Power BI that, you know, he actually knew how to do that. I didn't. So depending on where you are, started why like, I joke around sometimes. It's like, man, if we can just survive until the smart college kids show up, we're going to be fine. So it's a great way to add part-time from a financial commitment standpoint help. But man, they've got new ideas too, right? Like I think I'm young, but I'm not actually that young. And so you bring 
fresh set of eyes into a company, I find their first couple of days are a little unwilling to like critique <laughs> what we're doing. But then once you get over that hump, they can poke all kinds of holes and things and find better ways to do things. And so that's been a big part of our talent strategy as we've built Boxcore too. Yeah, I like that. Having fresh eyes and I think that speaks a lot to the culture that you've built there where, I mean, you've probably met as many as I have a lot of co-founders of startups that they have a very specific way of wanting to do things. And they want people that come into their team that kind of align with that. And it's sort of their way. But that speaks something to the culture that you and your dad have built, where it's like even an intern in the summer that has probably very little to no business experience can help influence something so crucial to your startup. So that's cool. Appreciate that. And I mean, honestly, man, I think it ties back to that humility piece. And I'm not banging on anybody that... Because I mean, there are certain startups where it's like, hey, we're building a rocket ship and I know exactly what I need and this is where this is headed. We've never really taken that perspective. But I think that's one of the lessons I've learned in humility is like, you know, I think we lead them with, hey, this is how I think this should go. Here's this project. This is what we need to get done. If I were to do it, this is how I would do it. But being willing to... I don't really care how they get there as long as whatever the end goal is accomplished. I don't care what it looks like as long as it's the right thing. So I think that's been something that I've tried to take from that humility. Just hey, I don't have all the answers. And frankly, it's probably good for everybody that I don't that I don't. So, well, to wrap up, I typically like to ask, let's say you're meeting for lunch with somebody that it's like where you were when you were at Duke. And you're just like, I have this idea. And I'm thinking about stepping out into entrepreneurship or they're new and they just stepped out. Like maybe what would be a question that you would ask that person to help support them? And then how would you encourage them as a new founder or a new entrepreneur? I think the question I would ask them is why do you want to do it? Because like, you're going to have to go back. Like, like, cause we talked about, right? Like there are going to be days that you're just like, man, this is terrible. I don't want to do this anymore. You got to have a strong why to jumping in because it's not shark tank and it's not whatever those other entrepreneurship shows are like i mean there are moments like that right where you're like that was amazing and that was awesome but 90 percent of it is you sitting by yourself cranking on something that you know is hard so i would ask them why i think it all boils down to relationships and so i think my advice to them would be invest in the relationships that you have like I can just give you an example. So like our angel investor, if we had just taken money from somebody that I didn't really know that just gave us money, we would have missed so much of the insight that he has to offer, his support for the business, his support for me as a person, as a dad. I mean, honestly, like I told you, he's like the definition of an angel investor. Like When we kind of blew through the money that he had put in, like he engineered some like consulting project for me, paid for directly to me that I swear to you is still sitting. It may have moved from his top drawer into the recycling by now. I don't know. But like, there's no way he did it. <laughs> it was just 100% just trying to help me out. And the investors that we've picked up since then, I mean, like they are engaged in like, hey, how do we really, I, I know I can pick up the phone and I can call them and say, hey, I need help on this. And they would drop what they're doing and help. So it's not just about like the money. It's about the relationships. I'm a part of this Praxis Guild in Indianapolis, which is a, a redemptive entrepreneurship guild that we meet once a month and like the relationships that I have there. I mean, honestly, another way that I really recharge is I go spend 
three and a half hours with them and feel like I'm ready to take over the world again when I, when I get out of there. But if you don't have that, like if you don't have those relationships and like, frankly, like a lot of them I didn't have when I started it. So I don't think you have to have these relationships like to start, but it's like, you got to find those relationships that you can really leverage and go to when you need it. But you got to be that person too. Right. So you, you can't just be taking it all the time either. You got to kind of pay it forward too. Yeah. I hear in that, you know, especially the practice group at the end, like, I tell so many entrepreneurs that, yes, it's going to be mostly about you just doing the work, grinding sometimes, but who can you surround yourself with that is not necessarily directly involved with your business, who is investing in you and you're investing in them. There's some mutuality to it and you're helping each other to keep going. That's so key because I think the where entrepreneurship becomes destructive and is when it's very isolated and people get lonely. Because it's a very, it can be a very lonely road at times, especially when you see your friends that are in stable jobs and making six figures, and it's not hard for them to spend ten thousand dollars on a vacation, and you can go down the line of like things like that. But it can be very isolating and lonely. So that's I'm glad that you have that. So, how can people get in touch with you and check out Boxcore? Our website, it's boxscoreme.com. So B-O-X-S-C-O-R-E-me.com. I'm on social media a little bit. I mean, Boxcore, we have a LinkedIn page. I've really tried to cut back on it, but my Twitter, if you want the latest on my sports musings, is at Patrick Burke 8 And I'll just give you my email too. It's Patrick at boxscore.me is my email. I love meeting new friends and learning more about what other people are building in the city. I'd love to connect with anybody that's interested. Awesome. Thanks, Patrick. Really appreciate your story and your insights. So, Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com. <laughs>